Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Uh, welcome everyone to the Strength Coach Experience, episode number twenty-one. Uh, today, I want to welcome Mike Stella, uh, who is the owner of the Movement Underground in Long Island. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Mike several times. We've we've crossed paths quite a lot, and always enjoyed uh, our conversations. Lots of knowledge thrown around. Mike, I'm psyched to have you on here, man. And and like I said, I appreciate you coming on and, and chopping up, talking shop. Joe, always a pleasure, my friend. It's great to see you. It's been definitely too long, um, but anytime I can help you out, you know I'm always down. And um, it's, yeah, again, like you said, we've always had great conversations over the years, so I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of gold we can uncover today. But yeah, man, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, of course, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm sure we'll find some, find some good gold in today's convo. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so why don't we just, uh, you know, kick off a little bit of background about you, you know, growing up and, and kind of how you uh, went through the sporting world and then we'll kind of build upon that. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm a lifelong athlete, you know, from the time I was in like second grade, played peewee football, you know, all the way through high school football was pretty good at that. And you know, I ran track in high school. I also was a bowler, but I guess like my, my main sport was lacrosse, um, you know, so I picked up lacrosse in middle school and I played through high school. It's pretty, you know, again, I was just a good athlete, like general athlete. So lacrosse was one of those sports that I picked up pretty quickly. You know, if you can run and you can cut and you can do those things, it's a sport that you can be pretty good at at a young age. And so uh, that early on in high school, I kind of knew, I guess, that that would have been my ticket in terms of playing like a collegiate sport. Um, and, and that was, in fact, the case. Uh, you know, I was getting a lot of interest uh, my junior year. Um, you know, as a, as a player here on Long Island, cause that's what we do is play lacrosse here. And then, uh, my senior year, I was, I was, I started the season on a tear and was just absolutely kind of like coming into my own, you know, like that, where you have that confidence to go with some skill. And, uh, unfortunately I blew my knee out, uh, the fifth game of my senior year. So I tore my ACL, MCL, PCL, my meniscus. I kind of really messed up the knee pretty bad. And, and that really kind of started the whole, athletic training, sports medicine journey for me. I think at that point I was thinking about, you know, kind of the classic, like 18 year old didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I was thinking about like engineering or architecture was something I was interested in at that time. Um, but then after I kind of went through that surgical and rehab process, I kind of just fell in love with this whole idea of being able to help other injured athletes kind of overcome, you know, the adversity that sometimes gets in the way of sports. And, um, you know, I don't think I had really considered physical therapy at that time, but there was something about like being in the trenches with the athletes as an athletic trainer, like every day that was just really appealing to me personally. Um, and again, like I, I did end up playing in college. I, I didn't get the full ride offers that I was looking for. Um, but Marist College was the last D1 to offer me uh, athletic scholarship money and, and they happen to have an athletic training program. So it it worked out pretty, pretty well for me in that case. Um, so I changed my major athletic training and I, and I only ended up playing two years of lacrosse at Marist because, you know, I just, after the knee, I just was that guy that was always hurt. Like I couldn't stay on the field. Um, it really messed with my, um, my mind too. I think, you know, like at that age where you're, when your whole younger years are wrapped around playing sports and like your whole identity is like 
kind of tied with being like an athlete, especially if you're any good at a young age, people like, you know, uh, excited for you and excited about you. And I guess that really kind of, uh, it hurt, you know, on like that mental and emotional level. I just wasn't able to kind of overcome. And I think that might be the hardest part of rehab for a lot of athletes is, is trusting your body again. And, um, and, and kind of building that confidence back. And, and I never really took that step. And I think that is part of the reason I became like obsessed, you know, with movement and, you know, bridging that gap between rehab and strength and conditioning, because I was the guy that kind of fell through the cracks in the system. Uh, you know, I was doing my rehab, but it just wasn't enough to challenge my, you know, ability to, you know, to change my body in the way that it needed to adapt to be an effective division one lacrosse player. So, um, so yeah, and that, that kind of was the Genesis that led me to where I'm at now. Yeah. I think it's uh, across the board, you know, a lot of people that are really involved in, in this and they get really, uh, you know, kind of, uh, feet deep, if you want to say, in the sports medicine field, much like yourself, getting hurt, you know, in the younger years and have the kind of go through those trials and tribulations uh, is really what kind of sparks that interest, you know, sure. especially if the people around you and, and not that saying that anything at Marist was bad or at the high school level, but if it, if it doesn't get you back to where you want to, or, the, or kind of the picture in your head uh, that you're carrying around the whole time in recap of what you think you're going to uh, Pete, be yeah. like once you're done. Right. And, I, and I think it's amazing. You brought up that psychological part. I think that's missed a lot. Uh, it doesn't matter really how good the exercises are or kind of what you're doing or the promise for the future. It's that mental kind of, you know, destruction that happens right when you get injured, especially at 17, you're, you're destruct, you know, you're a, you're Superman, you know? You yeah. Know. Yeah, man. I, you know, exactly. I think, you know, and, and, and the interesting thing about that too was um, in high school, I was exposed to strength and conditioning like my freshman year, like our phys ed, one of my favorite phys ed teachers in my school started this option where you could do strength training instead of like co-ed gym. And it was really meant for the athletes to be able to get some time in the weight room, you know, cause it's hard when you're in season, you're going right to practice. And so I had gotten exposed to it and I liked being in the weight room, but I never really understood. I think I knew that I knew training was important, but I, you know, like I didn't have that deep connection to it or understanding of it until I got hurt. You know what I mean? And so rel I was relatively just like a really gifted, untrained athlete. And I think at the high school level, we see that a lot where you could just be that standout kid and not necessarily have the work ethic that lines up with that. And then all of a sudden you get to the collegiate level and that gets exposed. Right. And so, you know, for me as a lacrosse player, I was, I was a good athlete, but not the best like stick handler or skill player. I was just faster than everybody else. I could, I just had a, a, a really big motor, you know, so that made me like the, a really great midfielder because I could put pressure on people up and down the field. I can create separation with my legs. I think in high school, I ran like a four, six forty. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and that was really good. Like, you know, no technical training or anything like that. And so, you know, once the knee blowout happened and then I kind of like started compensating a lot uh, and I saw that performance wasn't there then that's where the mental part of it really struggles. And, and I'm, it reminds me of a quote from, uh, I think it's a Bruce Lee quote, or actually it's a Sun Tzu quote, is the author of The Art of War. Great book. Right, which is, yeah, of course, is always referenced in like every podcast ever. But it's like the, the, the body is only going to go as far as the mind is willing. And, and I think that's kind of exactly what happened to me. It was, it was couldn't get over those mental, emotional, and social hurdles. Um, 
you know, the physical part I think was the undertone of it. And it was really more of like not never having that confidence again, you know, and um, which, which, which was just the catalyst for like the end of my athletic career. But again, was also the catalyst for why I became obsessed with what I'm doing now or passionate about what I do now is, is understanding how to put all these pieces together. So other athletes don't fall through the cracks like I did. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, awesome story. And like I said, I think that's a big thing you talked about in high school when you're that guy, you know, that everybody knows is going to go D1 and you're, you're the guy in the in the hallway. I think also two people tend to kind of leave you alone. You know, you said you had a strength coach, you know, you were exposed in the ninth grade. I'm sure if he would have pushed you a little bit more or sat you down and said, look, Mike, you're very skilled, but you're very raw. You know, if we could get you to do X, Y, and Z, you know, the, the future would be a lot brighter or you would avoid some of these injuries. But I think that's something that happens, you know, especially, you know, me being in, when I was in the minor leagues, a lot of the kids, they don't know anything because everybody leaves them alone. You know, you bet right. 700 in high school and you're getting recruited by every D1 school that's out there. It's almost like they don't want to touch you because they don't want to break you or or they think they're going to impede your future. That's a great point, man. You know, because that's one of those things where I was like, why didn't anybody ever have this conversation with me? I, and again, I did, to your point earlier, I did get, I, I really liked athletic training because I was around people that I really liked that were a part of that field. So it wasn't that they were bad people or they did me a disservice in any way. I, I think a lot of it had to do with like the politics of sports medicine and like the business of sports medicine. You know, like when I first started my rehab, it was like through the whole insurance model. And it was basically like that factory setting rehab. And, you know, at 18, you don't know any better. I didn't know to ask my therapist, like, hey, should I be doing more than freaking straight leg raises, you know, three or four months out? I just did what I was told to do, you know. And and so, again, not having the knowledge for myself at that time to be my own advocate was a huge part of it, but I never had that person sit me down and say, Hey, Mike, listen, you know, like I, I know you're, you're a quality athlete, but if you don't do these things, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. I never had that person like really kind of be transparent with me about, you know, how that whole athletic development or rehab process actually worked. You know, I think like a lot of people, you go to the doctor, let's say you have a surgery for whatever. And that doctor says, okay, seven months, you know what I mean? And so you get this time stamp in your head that at seven months, I'm going to be back to where I was. And that is just a, that was the worst thing my doctor ever did for me was give me a, an answer, a time-based answer. And so, you know, I get this all the time, even today is like my athletes will have an injury or, you know, the, the situation always comes up where surgery might be, you know, the necessary course of action and be like, okay, how long until I can return to play? I'm like, I don't, I don't care how long you think it's going to take. You'll be ready when you're ready. And the amount that you put into this process is going to directly correlate to what you get out of it. And is going to correlate to when your body is prepared to play. But you know, that's the way I work with my athletes now is criteria based decisions, not time-based decisions. You know, I don't care if your protocol says you should be doing X at two months. You know, if you don't show me that you have the capacity or the competency to perform these things safely, then you're going to still be working on basic stuff until you show me. Um, And again, that's part of that mindset that, that comes from an injured athlete that was obsessed with that, Okay, six months, I'm back to play. And here I am playing Division One lacrosse, you know, basically on one leg. And, uh, and, and a lot of those stick skills got exposed. And that's where I really think, you know, the injuries sort of kind of piling up. 
Yeah, I think that's an overwhelming issue uh, that I'm sure we'll get into. But that factory kind of structure you talk about, you know, you go into the doctor, you trust the doctor, you're 17 years old, right? You trust the AT, everything that they say you're going to you're going to do. And then they give you that time, right? And you think in seven months, bang, I'm going to be that person again. And what they should do is they should explain to you the entire process, the bad, the good, what the worst case scenario is but the best case, so they're fully aware. Uh, and then, you know, as you go through, just like you said, and, and what you do is you're going to be ready when your body's ready. And then your right. mind understands now you're now that your mind understands your body is capable of doing the things that you did uh, kind of before we got injured. So I think it right. all comes down to that education, you know, educating the athletes. hundred uh, percent. And not only the education, I think, you know, this is kind of one of the fundamental flaws with our system in general is that, you know, we do, put the MD up on this pedestal. And again, like that's the pinnacle of the medic, the medicine career, right. Is that MD. And so I think what a lot of people do is take that verbatim and hook line sinker as, as doctrine. Well, the doctor said, this is what it is. So this is what it is. And what a lot of people don't realize is a, that doctor is a human being just like the rest of us. And they have bad days and they have, you know, maybe bad home situations and you know how didn't get a lot of sleep the night before or you know they're they're fallible just like any other human the other part of that too is they get such a small snippet of that process that i think a, a lot of times athletes put all the weight into what the doctor says but they don't realize that they and i posted about this this week on my instagram was they they spend such a small fraction of time with that provider which means that that doctor has so little information or data to make quality decisions with that all they can do is go off the, the, the typical, you know, the typical standard operating procedure is what they're going to give you information on. I don't think they have a lot of knowledge on what that rehab process actually entails. Yeah. They could go through, yeah. Okay. You got to get your range of motion back, your strength back, you know, and then you got to start going back into sports specific activities, you know, but that's a 10 cent answer to a million dollar question. You know what I mean? And so, and again, and, and ultimately it's their call, which I think is part of the fundamental flaw of our system when it's really, you know, the, the athletic trainer, physical therapist, strength conditioning coach that might have way more influence or impact on that athlete's recovery and really have more insight and information as to where they are in that process. Um, and so I think there's just a little bit of discourse in the current system because we create all of these divisions in medicine, you know, everybody's an expert at one particular thing, you know, and kind of one of my favorite, like one liners when I'm explaining this to athletes is like, Oh, Mike, why is your perspective so different than my surgeons? And it's like the surgeon's job is over. You know, I'm not in there telling him how to, you know, what graph to harvest and you know, what angle that UCL reconstruction needs. I don't freaking know. Guess how many surgeries I've done. Zero. You know what I mean? I know about the procedure, just like they know about the rehab, right? So I'm much more in depth in the movement science part of it, the integrated strength and conditioning, the manual therapy, the reducing the pain, understanding the healing process, coaching an athlete up on nutrition and what the day-to-day is going to look like. And, And I think that's where, you know, A, people need to stay in their lane, but also collaborate and be communicative with each other. And I think that is where, when I talk about falling through the cracks in the system, that's what I mean. You know what I mean? Is that that doctor's gonna be like, okay, seven months has gone back. You can start throwing a baseball again. But like, what were the quality of those seven months? You know what I mean? Like I have a Tommy John kid right now, 15, and it sucks to see young kids like this get, you know, have elbow injuries. And and it's happening more and more frequently because like a lot of kids are just, lack the physical capacity, you know, for, 
you know, the demand that they're putting on their body at a young age. And the first question they ask is how long is this going to take? When can I start throwing again? And again, my answer is, I know doc said four months, but if you're not meeting these checkpoints at four months, then I'm not putting a baseball in your hand. And it's not because I'm a mean guy or I don't like you, or I don't want to see you succeed. It's because I'm protecting you. You know what I mean? I'm more than willing to be aggressive and push that boundary, you know, and to push you through this process um, and challenge you every step of the way, but I'm never going to put you in a situation where I think there's a chance you could potentially get hurt worse. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that the vision that you speak about is the biggest probably issue because the MD is at the top of the pyramid and then everybody else is kind of there. And then there's these little walls in between where nobody wants to communicate, where mm-hmm. if we would just kind of communicate all together and everybody would be open, uh, you know, then everything would be better for the athlete. Much like you said, you've never done a surgery, right? Most doctors have never cut on an agility ladder, ran around cones or, you know, done different things. You know, exactly. exactly. You know, and so, and it's easy to say, Oh, don't do that. And, and, and because it's got some, you know, again, when we coach athletes, right, we're always evaluating risk. What's the risk reward ratio on this particular exercise or, you know, this particular period of their training. And we're always looking for that maximum upside. Right. And so, and I I think unfortunately, and again, this is a, a general statement, you know, I think most orthopedic physicians just don't understand the nuances of that enough to say, you know what, who are the best strength and conditioning coaches in my area so that I can refer these athletes after physical therapy to a trainer or a coach that can help take them the rest of the way. Listen, they got paid their job's done, you know? So for them, yeah, of course they're going to highlight every athlete. That's a success story that they've ever operated on, but how many kids never get back or how many athletes never get back to where they were or where they want to be wash out of sports. You don't hear about those people. And so, you know, like, I guess, I, I guess maybe that makes me a champion for the downtrodden. I don't know. I, I just, I just know my experience and, and, and how much that shaped who I am as a clinician today. Um, and, and again, it's one of the core values of the movement underground, which is, you know, nobody slips through the cracks, lift the fallen, you know, even if they don't have the resource per se, we find a way to get them, uh, you know, at least pointed in the right direction, you know, with some guidance. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I feel like a lot of times too, it's almost like they're, they're selfishly protecting their own reputation because if they right. tell you, Hey, yeah, you can deadlift and they get hurt. That doesn't look good because it's not a success right. story. And it's easier to take everything away. It's easier just to say, yep. don't do that. because you'll get hurt. And so, but again, I think unfortunately what happens is we're just setting a lot of athletes up for, for failure when they do return to sport because, because there isn't a cohesive message. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately for me and and like my business and and the situation I'm in now, um, I get to build a lot of rapport and trust with my athletes before they ever get to that point. And so when I sit them down and I have that, that real transparent, like, real talk with them about how the system works. It's like, well, why does this doc think I need surgery? It's like, why doesn't he want to do a $75,000 surgery? Like, why wouldn't he want to do that? Well, you know, and again, and it's just like when you understand the game, cause it's a game, man, it's a freaking game. And, and a lot of these doctors, you know, they know that insurance isn't going to approve a surgery on the first visit. So they'll, they'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah, we'll try therapy or, you know, just rest it for six weeks and then come back. If you're still having the same problem, then we'll see, you know, because they know that second visit, if you're coming back to the same issue, then they can make that surgical recommendation and it's all going to be kosher and get paid for. And so again, it's a game, 
you know, and again, not to say, again, I'm not trying to blast doctors. There's plenty of great ones out there, but again, somebody graduated last in that class. Somebody's in it just for the money. And like, how, you know, it's always funny to me when athletes will be like, Oh yeah, my doc, my surgeon was the best guy at this. He's the best in the, in the world. And I'm just like, not likely. Okay. Somebody graduated at the bottom of that class. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. You know, it's a game, you know, and, and I think that's, that's something to do your due diligence at because most right. of them just want to cut you open. You know, there's that age old thing, you know, therapists want to kind of heal you. Clinicians want to get you back to, you know, where you were doctors want to cut you open, you know, right. and, and it's, that's a constant thing. And because, they're like stereotypes, right. But like, yeah. you know, they would, they, they have some truth to them, you know, just in the general kind of role of it. And, and again, I, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, if, if I get in a car wreck and my shoulders hanging off, like take me to an orthopedic surgeon, but for the amount of time that a lot of athletes will vet their surgeon, they'll fly across the country. They'll wait months to get a, a visit with the top guy. They'll pay ungodly sums of money to this surgeon for an hour procedure. And then they'll go to the closest rehab facility to their house. Yeah. No, you that's covered. That yesterday. That's, yeah. That cover that's covered under their insurance. You know what I mean? And it's like, you're going to spend the next nine to 12 months with this rehab provider, potentially like what's their experience level. Have they returned athletes to this sport before? What did those athletes do? You know what I mean? And for me, it's always funny. Cause I had a, a different kid that was an elbow bracing procedure and he was like, Oh, you know, I don't know. You know, the parents were kind of like not hemming and hawing, but they were, they were on the fence. Cause the surgeon was like, you have to go to a physical therapist. I'm very transparent. I'm an athletic trainer and a strength coach by trade. I'm not a physical therapist. And they were worried that because I didn't have that credential that I didn't have the experience. I was like, I'm going to go see a Yankees player later today. <laughs> um, so like, I, I mean, my, my, and again, not to blow smoke up my own ass, but like I I've returned champion level athletes to sport. I've, I've helped guys come from Tommy John to get drafted multiple times. And so the, I think the, the results speak for themselves. And, and again, I think it's, and it's because I don't do it all myself. It's because I do have a great network and I will collaborate with any provider that wants to collaborate to get the athlete the best possible result because that's what is going to build my business ultimately is you, the, the athlete succeeding. You know what I mean? And so I think when you can check that ego, and again, I've come across the physician that I work with. He's one of those guys. He's not an ego guy. He's not looking to cut people open. And again, from a philosophical standpoint, I love referring people to him because he'll echo the same message. Hey, you know, you got to stick to the rehab. You got to stick to the training. And, you know, there are times where I send him athletes that need an MRI and potentially need surgery. And, and it works out for everybody that they're, they're in the hands of a quality doctor who's looking to do the right thing, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Like I said, it's not that they're all bad and it's not there, but that openness to communicate and understand what so we huge. do. You right. know, and so I think huge. one of the biggest things for us, I mean, to touch on what we talked about before, nobody glorifies the kid that got hurt, broke his ass during rehab, and now is okay, but never was there, right? They don't talk right. about that. So now on top of the pressures of athletics that, you know, it brings in today's society, you also don't have anybody to follow. Okay, right. you could be in the World Series throwing, you know, a one hitter or 
or this kid was in the same position you were. He got hurt. It didn't work out so well athletics, but he went on to do great things. And right. I think those are the things that need to be, you know, kind of pushed up. And to, to talk about the other point you made too, as strength coaches, as ATs, uh, I think it's important that we get more, you know, a little bit more credit because just like you said, a kid will question whether or not you know what you're doing or, you know, they'll, they'll question you to your blue in the face. I mean, I've had it from, you know, certain kids and younger kids. How do, how do you know, how do I do this? And I'm like, dude, not to say not to pull smoke up my ass, but I've been there and I've done it and to kids at, at much higher levels. Right. So it's not me being egotistical. It's what I know and what I, you do. have that experience, exactly. you know, and, and that's really important, you know, and, you know, and again, it's just one of those things. You just can't follow a template and expect it to work mm-hmm. out. You know what I mean? And, and I think it, like what you said about like being open to collaborate or being open to communicate, like if an athlete comes to me with an injury issue and I just like, oh, you're not lifting anymore. We shut them down. Like, what does that do to their psyche? You know, you're taking away their sport. You're taking away any physical outlet they would have to improve their body or their mindset. And you're putting them in a worse position than if you were like, you know what? Let me give Joe a call. Let's talk about their program. Let's modify where we can modify and keep them moving. And then all of a sudden that athlete goes down to tell you about their injury. And you're like, Oh, I already spoke to Mike and this is the plan we have for you. What, what's the confidence level in that athlete now? It's like, fuck, I got a great team. Like, you know, these guys are on the same page. They talked about my issue when I didn't ask them to, you know what I mean? And like, all of a sudden now they feel safe. They feel confident that we have this under control because they got multiple eyes on them. And again, who wins in that scenario is the athlete. And, and again, I'm so proud of the movement underground and East coast strength and performance, which is my new strength and conditioning partner um, for what we've been able to do collaboration wise. And, and because we have that same philosophy and, and not only has it gotten us great results with the athletes, but it's, it's grown both of our businesses as a result. And, and, and it's just a great example of, how collaboration versus competition is just the way to go. You know what I mean? Like for every person out there doing something similar to you, you can look at that in two ways. You can look at that. Oh, that guy's competing. He could potentially steal a client from me or Hey, I might be able to learn something from that person. They might have an experience that I don't have, or maybe I have experience that they don't have. They might refer to me and I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and no, it happens. It I happens. Think, I think it's a, it's a great, you know, concept. And, and me and you've always talked about, it. you know, we work together, you know, tools in the toolbox. I touched on right. in my last podcast with my friend Ryan with the Indians. You never want to take things out. It's the same thing. I think with people, if you sure. have a bigger toolbox or you have a workbench, you know, you don't want to get rid of things. You know, if you do things better than me, why would I, you know, why would I kill myself trying to figure these things out when I know I'm a specialist at X, Y, and Z Right. Mike does all these things. Great. And I know if I send him to Mike, he's going to come back probably better and then we can collaborate together. And then it's me and him against this problem, as opposed to me trying to figure out how to grasp him. Let's just right. say, you know, exactly. thing. why would you do that? You know? And, and I think that's, that's one of the things, I don't know if it's a younger thing. Cause I know when I was at LIU, my first year as a GA, I wanted to do it all. Uh, you know, it took me about a, about six months to figure out that wasn't a, a smart play. That's probably fast for yeah. most people, man. I, you know, again, it, like it comes down to ego and yep. we all have one. And I think the younger that you are, when you finally like face your ego and like understand that it's, it's a, it's a thing that is constructed of all of these preconceived notions and beliefs that were, you know, that you grew up with and this expectation of who you are and who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. It's the supposed as soon as you're able to let that shit go 
and understand that you are not the all-knowing, all-being, and you don't have to do it all yourself, and that you can get a better result and have more fun and enjoy your work and your life more by asking for help or by, you know, sending somebody to the right person. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's a reflection on you anyway. And it's like, Joe, I can't thank you enough, man, for, for, you know, sending me off to this person. And now you're still the hero, which is what we all want to, our egos all want to be the hero. And that's what happens when we're young, man. And I was the same way, super impetuous in my twenties. You know, I, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I felt like I was better than a lot of my peers in terms of, you know, knowledge and clinical acumen and, and it ended up causing a lot of professional strife for, for me because I, I wasn't able to set that ego part aside. You know, I took everything personally. And so it led to a lot of frustration, um, you know, and, and a lot of, you know, not discourse, but led to friction in a lot of workplaces for sure. And so, you know, I didn't really learn that until my later 20s. So I would say you're ahead of the curve on that, man. <laughs> well, you know, everybody has it though, like I said, but but at the same time, that's what drives you in sports. You know, right. I, I think I think the, the thing with the ego, you know, I, I know it's it's kind of the downfall of, of certain things, but also, you know, a lot of people, especially now they try to get away from the ego. The ego is what makes you an athlete. The ego is what makes you confident in, sure. I'm going to do this treatment and it's going to work. So I think, you know, more so, you know, getting rid of the ego but but channeling the ego well, it's the a double it, it's a double-edged sword yep, right exactly. it's a double edge, and, and i love that you you said that that's such an insightful thing because it is like when you're and i think part of the reason i struggled with some of that stuff in the early part of my career was because you kind of take that athlete mindset to it mm -hmm. which is i'm you know what i mean like you why was I a good high school lacrosse player? Because I was like, I wanted the ball. Like, give me the ball when yeah. shit needs to get done. You Not know what I mean? Not because you wanted to share it with the rest of the team and see everybody. Right, right. You know, sure, I'll throw a pass here and there. But like, but like you take, and again, like, and I think, you know, people appreciate that athlete mindset, but it can create situation, you know, and so it's not like you have to fight your ego or get rid of your ego. You just have to be able to check it mm -hmm. and be aware that it's there. Yep. 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 You know, you gotta, it's an awareness thing. It's, it's just like, mm -hmm. you know what, am I doing this for me or am I really doing this for that other person? You know what I mean? You know, it's so funny too. Cause like social media is like the easiest place <laughs> to see a lot of ego, which is like, you know, that, that trainer who's taking credit for their athlete or like, Oh, my technique would have prevented this injury or this guy should have come see me. And it's just like egos on display. You know what I mean? It's yep. kind of like a, you know, ego measuring contest a lot of times. And, and, yep. and it's interesting and it's, you know, no Instagram, Instagram's right. a new MD, Mike. Oh, but <laughs> on Instagram, they do this. And this guy on Instagram that, that trained all these people, they right. do reverse lunges with twice their body weight and they throw 97 miles an hour. Right. Why can't I do that? I'm like, that's that you don't think, what about the other hundred kids that can't even look at twice their body weight reverse lunges <laughs> at 75 like you know i'm right. always like I, I understand where you're coming from i get it looks great but why would he put the bad video on his social media platform of course exactly it's not like every guy that walks to that gym is just a sh brick shit house immediately is you know no it's totally true and again it's our highlight reel right and so yep. the highlight reel is one of those things that tends to feed the ego a bit but again there's there's good and bad to it like anything else um i just think that is a a highly underrated skill for any young clinician, any young strength coach, any young therapist or any athlete is to just be a, a, a bit more self-aware of, of your tendencies, your, how you respond to adversity or stress or bad news or all these kinds of things. Um, you know, like if you're 
really aware of that, or at least can learn from the mistakes as you go and, and, and put them into practice. You know, I think people are always disappointed what they can accomplish in like, you know, three to six months, but underrate highly what they can accomplish in a, in a couple of years. You know, if you could just put it all together, you know? Yeah, no, it's that, it's that instant gratification, you know, social right, exactly. media has done a terrible thing with that because, you know, not only now, people don't want to see the process. You know, that's where you get, they want to see the results. Oh, good. I can, this get through in two weeks. I want to do this now. And I'm like, well, look at the process, you know? And and I think that's the, I think it hurts a little bit because when you're trying to explain to somebody that's went through something, it's very hard to say, Hey, this kid did this. Why don't you call him or look at, go watch this documentary. Let's just say of this same person. They don't want to do that. Right. They want to, well, how come he throws 99 miles an hour? I'm like, yeah, but, but he had to get there somehow. You know, and, and well, even that it, again, it even speaks that whole illusion, this whole yep. myth that if you get Tommy John surgery, you're going to throw harder, you know, because the guys that make it come back throwing harder. It's like it has nothing to do with the surgery. Nope. That was the first time that athlete took a year off of throwing a baseball and actually maybe mm-hmm. worked with a quality strength coach or a quality athletic trainer and filled in some of the deficits in their game or filled in some of the holes in their in their movement. You know what I mean? All of a sudden now things sync up and they're coming back better than ever. And, and so to your point, people will see this guy had surgery and came back throwing harder. Therefore the surgery means they're going to throw harder. Like we want that if then statement that makes it mm-hmm. simple for our feeble minds to kind of like wrap our, you know, wrap around. And there's just so many variables and complexities to that. And like you said before, you never hear about the guy that never made it back. Yeah. You don't hear about that guy. He's not getting talked about on MLB network. He's not, Oh, look at this story. Kid came out of independent baseball with Tommy John and now he's throwing 97 for the Indians. It's like statistical outlier, you know, like, or, or a guy that really freaking put the work in and, you know, grinded for a year with nobody watching. And then the result is what you see, you know, 12 to 15 months later, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you know, the, the process isn't there. And like you said, to touch on the Tommy John, they had that in them all along, right. but they took a year off. They strengthened their weaknesses. They right. worked with somebody who refined their mechanics. And now you're seeing. And what they, they put it all together. Yeah, exactly. It's right. not because somebody cut the robo open and sewed it back together. It's right. And they, they, you know, they, they infuse some adamantium and then all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's the end be all. So uh, we've been touching on it awful lot. I want to know going through college and things of that sort. When did you know you kind of thought a little bit different than the general kind of outline of AT and the things you were being taught? Uh, like freshman year, pretty much okay. right away. Uh, you know, again, I was always the guy to ask why. Mm-hmm. And, and my program director at Marist, um, she had a big ego. And, and so it, basically her answer to why was always because I said so, or because this is the way it's always been done. That explains is, it just great, doesn't it? Changes. Right. And, and that just always irked me, man. It always bothered me. I was like, no, I want to understand Like I was the kid that got a toy and, you know, when it broke, eventually would take it apart to try to figure out how it worked. You know what I mean? Like I was that kid. Like I was the kid that had a rector set and connects and, you know, like the the thing that you wire together to make, you know, you you know, you you built the stuff that's not on the box. Right. Yeah. I built the stuff that wasn't on the box. I didn't follow the instructions. And so for me, when I was, you know, again, and a lot of it came from like this, this selfish place and this insecurity with my own injuries of why am I not the same guy? Like trying to reverse engineer my own problems and my own pain and my own performance issues. And the standard 
rehab model, like what we were taught in school, just didn't have the answers. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're not as fast as because your VMO is weak. Well, how could one muscle be weaker than the rest be causing me to go from a 4640 to a 50? Like, it doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't add up. Like the sum of those parts don't add up to the problem that I'm trying to solve. And so I think right away, I was always kind of a status quo rebel in some ways. And um, not to say that I, in college or when I was learning was like not doing it the way I was told. Like if you told me to do something once, like, you know, I was raised by my grandfather in, in a lot of respects. And if he asked, you know, like his whole mantra was, if you asked you to do something once, he should never have to ask you to do it again. And, and I took that to heart. That was something I always did really well. Like if you showed me how to do something once or asked me to do something once, I was going to do it without you having to ask me. And, um, and I think that mindset definitely set me up for success later because it forced me to kind of dig under the hood a little bit more on my own and start seeking the answers beyond just like, this is the, what I told, you know, like you do it this way. Cause I told you to do it this way. I needed to know why I had to, I had just had that like in my soul that I needed to find out why, like I'll do it and I'll do it at a high level, but I'm going to continue to figure out why on my own. And that really kind of morphed into like my treatment philosophy kind of as the years went on. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great example. I was the same way with strength conditioning, you know, and for anybody listening out there, we're not saying to cause anarchy in school. No, you're told, but no, why? Right. And then right. if the why doesn't make sense to you, go find out why. And then if the people around you don't know why, then, you know, you want to you find the person of... that does. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, there's no and... point in do this, do this. Right. It's, it's right. no why. And if you're not comfortable, if you're not comfortable with doing the why with a person telling you under a blanket, you're not going to be comfortable doing it when you're out there by yourself, because then you have to explain it. So right. it's not going to get any better. You're going to carry it around kind of like a burden. No. And, and again, it's even like to a deeper thing is like, I think a lot of us, you know, we go through schooling. Right. Um, and one, another, one of my favorite quotes is a Mark Twain quote. Um, and I use this one a lot when I teach is don't let your schooling get in the way of your education, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think what we end up doing is, okay, we go to school. Here's the chapter on shoulder. We learn all the anatomy. We learn the tests. We learn the basic exercises, X, Y, Z, one, two, three, because it's a blueprint. It's laid out for you that way. And then we're like, okay, knowledge acquired, done. And a lot of people, most people end that education or end that schooling rather and never continue their education. I know it all. I'm certified athletic trainer. Therefore, you know, I'll do my CEUs, but I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to, to really learn more. Right. And again, I'm not saying athletic, I'm, I'm generalizing yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where I, distanced myself maybe from the pack over my twenties was that, you know, my current level of knowledge was never good enough. And and again, selfishly motivated, motivated by insecurity of my own performance, my own body, my own issues with my profession and my career and what I was making financially and where I was at my life at that time, socially, um, And, and I think I was always like kind of pushing my foot on the gas to be the best that I could be because it, because I was so insecure about where I was. And so I I think that now it's funny because like people like will look at my social media now and think like, oh man, my career must have, you know, if you look at my highlight reel of my career, it's like, man, what are, what are awesome? How do I follow in that footsteps? And it was like, 
yeah, those are the highlights, you know, but like what you, what you don't see is a lot of really dark times, you know, a lot of real like depressed and struggling mentally and, you know, like dealing with a lot of those kind of demons or skeletons in my own closet, I, I think. Um, but again, I always had like, I was always passionate about what I did and helping others. And that kind of helped bring me through those times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it kind of fueled that fire to continue to be the best and, or try or aspire to be the best. I don't think I'm the best. I aspire to continue to learn and continue to grow. And the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know, um, mm-hmm. which is really fun. It keeps me coming back. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's the dangerous. Once you get in the upper echelons of stuff, you read things and you're like, I don't think I know anything, you know, and I've been doing this <laughs> yeah. for, for 10 years, you know, so you have to have to go diligent in what you read. But I, I think that's a great example. You know, uh, the biggest thing with this field is you have to have passion because Michael talk about the dark days and, and I will too, you know, working 15, 16 hours a day for no money. And you have right. to have something that fuels you and the people and the relationships and that, that urge to help people, I think is, is one of the only things that's going to grind you through, you know, cause if you're a guy that wants to be at LSU and make a quarter million dollars, that's not going to help you when you're, you know, training in the corner at a small studio, you know, with business cards, trying to get people to you know, train with you. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, have man. to, the passion has to come out of your mouth without you saying and talking about it. You know, they have to know it when they see you. And I, I think, I think that's, that's kind of what keeps us going. And also the, the networking, you know, the people around you. Right. And I think those are very, very important uh, things to, to take away. You know, it's not all about the money and it's not all about being in a place. You need that something that drives you because you're going to end up in, in time, not necessarily dark. I don't want to make it sound terrible, but right. there's going to be times, you know, especially Mike, I'm sure you could, you know, agree when you sometimes when you're at a job you like or whatever, or you, you, you lose a job because of certain reasons you question how many times you question whether you should be an AT in the oh, early dude. Years. You know, I mean, every, every freaking day, man, yep. every day I questioned yep. it. And, and, uh, you know, because I, I did love the profession. I loved the work. I loved being in the dirt. You know what I mean? Like with the athletes, like that was my why that's what kept me going. You're hundred percent right. And I think the people who end up leaving these professions for greener pastures, it's not that they're not passionate people, but this is not what they're passionate about. Their passion might be something else. And it's just not enough fuel on the fire to keep the fire burning through the rain. You know what I mean? You just, it's not just not enough, you know, and like that, and trust me, I, my fire came dangerously close to going out many, many times. And, um, and, and, and again, always the people that kind of bring you back, you know what I mean? It's just like, I'm getting paid shit. Why am I going over, you know, above and beyond what I'm required to do for this athlete. You know what I mean? And like, um, you know, one of my favorite stories to tell still is like the Justin Topa story. Oh, which was, you know, was on which, here, episode, episode eight. Right. And, and so if you go back and listen to Justin's story, I mean, that was my first year at LIU. He was the first athlete that I met. I got hired my first day on the job. I went to HSS to his doctor's visit with him, his first post-operative appointment. And I worked with him every single day for that entire year. And he ended up getting drafted without ever throwing a pitch that season. And Mike, and, we didn't even speak and you handed him right to me and he was in wonderful shape. That's what right, happened. You right. rehabbed him. And then I was there the next year. And it wasn't just me, like, you know, really worked closely with Richard and, and, and Craig Noto. And like, we really put the pieces in place around him. And I'm extremely proud of that. But there were days where I'm outside in the rain throwing with him because he didn't have anybody to throw with. So I was like, okay, I'll throw with you. With and I'm like, what the net. fuck am I doing? With my lacrosse stick. What am I doing? <laughs> I'm getting paid. I'm going to make, I'm going to make 
160 bucks this week or whatever. Like, it was. Like, <laughs> you, like, you know, I was like, I, the first time we had, I had to do that, I'm like, you know, I'm not using a lacrosse stick like Mike. I can't even come close. Well, what, what happened was like, I, I was throwing with him, like, you know, the good old fashioned way mm-hmm. until like, uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're stretched out to like 260 and there's like zero shot that like my arm is going to make that. <laughs> So I was just like, the only option I have is, is to make this, you know, time effective for him was to get, get my lacrosse stick and catch it and huck it back. <laughs> so that's what we did for nine months. Yeah. No, it was six months, whatever it was. But, you know, and again, it was, you know, all that behind the scenes stuff. Like I, I can't take credit for that. He did the work, no. you know, but I think watching him make his progress and, and, you know, like when I was in my darkest moments, knowing how important it was to him is what kept me going. You know what I mean? And then eventually it was like, that was my favorite part of the day was going out and throwing with him. You know, as soon as the weather started getting a little nicer out, a little warmer, and it wasn't such a bitch to get outside and throw in the cold. But well, LIU that, field is the coldest that place was on the, the face of the earth, Mike. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's, it's like 40 degrees. It's tongue. 40 degrees lower than anywhere else on the planet. Dude, yeah, it's the tundra in that one little area. It, April in the home dugout is like being in the Antarctic in the middle of dead winter. <laughs> uh, dude, trust me. Many a doubleheader sitting out in that field. But um, yeah, man. I, but like that's to the point. Like that was the why. That was what. The, the long hours and the shit salary and having a bartend on the weekends to make enough money to survive, like, like seeing his progress. And then, and like, even now all these years later, all these years later to see him get his MLB debut. Oh, and like, even for me, just feeling that like, just dude, like it, it like moves you. And, and like, I haven't been a part of his journey for a long time. And it's just an amazing thing to, to watch him take some of those lessons or, you know, whatever it was, anything that I was maybe able to impart in him in that year, in that experience. Um, and it, for him to, to see it serve him now, it's just, it's, it's an honor. It's a privilege. And it's part of the thing that still to this day, like keeps me coming back, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think the, you know, especially during COVID, I, I'll bring it up for myself, the people that you end up talking to, the people that reach out to you, like those, the, even down the road, nine right. years down, eight years, hey, just so you know, I'm a CEO now and I used to, used to be my coach. What you taught me back then is something I still use today. I think you right. hit it right on the head. That is the same reason why I do this. It's because you're creating a lasting change. It doesn't matter right. what you did. And, and I'll, I'll second it. All the stuff, all the athletes I've ever trained, it wasn't me. I made right. a blueprint, but it was their desire to get back and their you know openness to listen to this crazy person you right. know, on a daily basis. But it wasn't, you know, it's not the, the stuff I did, but it's that time where they, you know, five years down the road, six years, nine years, watching him on the But mountain. it is too, you know, like, and, and this is where I think, like you said earlier, like, you know, a lot of ATs and strength coaches, like, you know, it, we're behind the scenes professions, you know what I mean? And I think a lot of people in our, in our professions embrace that. We don't want, we don't need the accolades, you know, for us, it's fun to watch the athletes perform and, and achieve their goals. And, and, and I think, you know, again, I don't think anybody gets into this because they want to be a millionaire. No. You know what I mean? It's because we love it. And because we love that feeling that intrinsic value of feeling like you, you impacted somebody in a positive way. It's like, there is no better thing. Like to lay your head on the pillow at night and have that feeling is like one of the most rewarding things. And and if I was, and again, not to bash, like if I was working in finance and just crunching numbers every day and I had a lot of money in my bank account, but I was miserable. Like I I just don't, you know, I I wouldn't trade what I, the journey, if I can go back and do it again and be like, okay, at 35, you'd have a million dollars in the bank and, blah, blah, blah. And all these, 
I wouldn't trade it because of, of how good of a feeling that is and, and, and how much it's meant to me over the years to, then again, like, you know, our paths crossed years ago, you know what I mean? And it's those bridges that you build in the trenches with other, you know, other providers, other professionals, like you don't realize how it resonates. And so like recently I was asked about like, you know, as a young AT, like how do I, you know, my goal is to work at this, you know, this particular level in sport, like how do I get there? And I'm like, you know, like he hates his current job. I'm like, you work the current job as if you're in that role that you want. Like kind of like dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Yep. Same like work as if it's the job you want, not the job you have, because the the impact that you're going to make on the day to day, you know what I mean? Like, it's funny because like, you know, every time I talk to Noto, that's what we talk about is like you went out there every day and threw with those guys because they had nobody else to throw with. Their free period was at a time they didn't have a teammate available. And you went out and took it upon yourself to make sure that they got that work in. Like, that's what they remember about me. You know what I mean? Yeah, but no. that's why they refer. That's why Craig refers people to me. And it's because like you, you know, he saw that you're willing to go that extra mile, you know, to, to make sure that the athlete is getting that benefit. And so, you know, again, I'm proud of that. That's something I look back and, and I feel a tremendous amount of pride about, you know, that even though I was impetuous in my youth and had a chip on my shoulder and maybe he was struggling at that time, I still was um, aware enough to give it my all. You know yeah. what I mean? And not let, and not let the salary or the hours or the stress impact the passion, impact the body of work or, or, or let it, let it trickle down my own issues and insecurities trickle down to the athletes where they would suffer. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I think that's what a lot of people do. It's like, i am get paid crap. I'm going to do the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to do what my job is and never do anything beyond that because, because there's no direct reward for me. There's no direct, um, you know, give back to me. And yeah. so, and again, going back to, it's like ego stuff. It's like, okay. And, and I get it. You know, most strength coaches at the collegiate level and at ATs get paid crap. Um, and that's why there's a lot of burnout. And that's why there's a lot of turnover in those jobs. And you would think it's a really cool job. And these organizations have lots of money. Why wouldn't it be better? Um, you know, and, and again, maybe that's a conversation for another time, but uh, I think that's why you see a lot of that turnover. Yeah, no, of course we could, we could definitely. And uh, shitty results too, because yep. people yeah. are just like, oh, here's the template. Why spend any brain power troubleshooting this for you and customizing it when I could just give you the standard operating procedure because it's easier, it's cheaper and it doesn't, it takes less of my time. Yep, exactly. No, I, I think, you know, the burnout is huge. And like I said, to touch on before, you know, as an AT, as a strength coach, there's, there's no better moment than when they're out there on the field and you yeah. have nothing, you have nothing to do with why they're out there, you know, <laughs> watching them play every athlete I train. I'm like, my happiest time is you on the field, not you in my weight room, not when right. we're chicken through stuff, you know, making sure that, you know, you're on the field. And, and I think those are the biggest things. And like you said, you, you really can't explain the experience when you have an athlete that went through right. stuff, you know, and, and, and they're, now they're doing what they want, or they're doing all the things that you talked about at, you know, to keep them motivated to go through their rehab. And right. sometimes you don't know if it's going to be there, but you have to, you know, keep, you know, keep pushing it and keep the realize that picture. Right. And I also want to touch on something that we talk about too. Most people that get out of the AT or the strength conditioning field early i think it goes back to the same that we talked about the injury the ego has a picture of how this is going to go in my head in five years i'm going to get the degree i'm going to do some crap for two three years and then bang i'm going to be on the sidelines of the new york jets and in three years that doesn't happen and then you know they're out like this because there isn't that passion driving them there isn't that other why to keep them in the field 
Totally, man. Totally. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, and again, it doesn't make them bad people. It's no. just, this isn't for everybody. And, you know, you know, overnight successes take 15 years. You know what I mean? It just takes time. And, and you know, and, and that's really one of the, it, it's the most important commodity we have as human beings. And it's the hardest thing to like wrap our heads around is this concept of time mm -hmm. um, and just how long it takes to get to that place that you want to be or that you imagine yourself being. And, you know, again, we always in our minds hit that highlight reel of the guy who made it that much faster or made that million dollars off of, you know, and you don't think that they're any more talented or smart than you are. So you must be able to do it too. And it's just, you know, sometimes you can catch lightning in a bottle, but most time it's just grinding, 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 and putting yourself in that position eventually, you know? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think we take time and we, every, everything has to be so structured anymore. Okay. Right. I'm going to be this way in eight years. This is going to happen in five years. You should be this way in the next couple of years. And, and I yeah. feel like you're right. People don't understand. It's what you do in the time you can, you know, you can do certain things in short time, but it's the 15 years that nobody watched you on, on YouTube or whatever you're doing, you know, and then now you yeah. see and it's, it's, wow, it's, it's literally full circle from our rehab conversations. Like, okay, I know doc said six months. Yep. What's the quality of that six months? That's what's going to determine yep. the outcome at six months, the quality of that time, not the quantity of time. Mm -mm. And so, again, I think that's exactly what we have imprinted in us in our didactic education in school is these are the steps you take to get to that goal. And those steps aren't steps. They're giant plateaus and pillars that you have to climb. You know, there's not like a neat path laid out for you where if you just stay the course for a few years, you're going to be in that position. It just doesn't work that way. What is the quality of that time? What is the quality of that experience? How much did you put into that process? Exactly. You know I mean? mm -hmm. and, and then eventually efficiency. you'll take, you'll be able to take some out, you know? Yeah, no, it's efficiency. How efficient can you be in the amount of time, right? They right. talk about, there's a saying, you, you'll be surprised how efficient people are when they have to be efficient. You know, it's just like in college, right? If you're a person who procrastinates, I do that a lot, but you have a month Same. to write a term paper, right? When did you write the term paper? The night before, but I got seven pages done in three hours. Right. Now I could have done that over the course of the month, but that wasn't my thing. Right. And, and, and that was how you got it done. But it's all about making that choice to be efficient in the amount of time you have. And I think we talked about time frame. I think people need to stop saying, I need to be at this big thing in 10 years. It's, I need to be this efficient for the next month. Then I need to be this efficient for the next month after that. And slowly build little blocks of efficient times, changing things and getting better at things that you're not as efficient at uh, right. as you go over. And that, that will lead to the success that I think you ultimately want. Yeah, it's process over outcome right journey you know journey over destination you know yep, everybody's exactly. seeking that destination but it's the journey that's the most important part you know exactly and you look at all these guys even with finance even all these these big guys in firms gary vanderchuk you know they'll talk about they love the process they don't care right. about the end goal of x amount of money it's building this business selling this thing creating this or making this idea and bring it into fruition right exactly you know, percent apply. Yeah, it applies across the board for sure. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I just want to go into a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Rock Tape and the end of Ice Age and the stuff you've been doing with them uh, over the past uh, couple years. Uh, yeah. So you know, I'm an instructor for Rock Tape, which is um, amazing. It's an amazing company, and you know, I'd already kind of started my own business at that point um, with Recovery Lab, which was my former former business with a former partner. And, um, you know, and, and at that time, I think I, I understood that social media was going to be a really important part of what I was doing um, to get my messaging out, like what I was doing, my philosophy, 
you know, what I'm about as far as like clinical practice. And, um, and so in the course of that, you know, creating content and putting myself out there and slowly, you know, that following started to grow a little bit at a time and met some amazing people through social media and networked with and, and then all of a sudden, you know, rock tape kind of sees me on a YouTube video, one of my YouTube videos and, you know, looks at my Instagram. And at that point I had taken a couple of their courses and was buying their products because the products were great. And I loved the price point. I loved the quality. It was just, I was, I was all in on that. So I loved the, their treatment philosophy it was so in line with what I was doing and how I'd gotten to that place on my own. And here's this amazing company that's like teaching it in like this, such a succinct, um, you know, inspiring way. And so I was kind of just hooked and, and yeah, eventually the opportunity came about for uh, applying for, for an instructor role and, and I got it and it was a total life changer, man. It really was a total life changer. So, you know, basically what that entails is like at the time pre COVID traveling around the country, teaching these uh, sports medicine related classes, like, you know, manual therapy classes, kinesiology, taping, cupping, movement, you know, movement evaluation, all these awesome concepts and being surrounded by a group of people that are all top of their field, you know, physical therapists, chiropractors, athletic trainers, occupational therapists, just like the absolute best of the best. And, and being in that room with them, just, it just made me such a better person and a, and a better clinician. And just, again, just being embraced by, you know, that kind of culture was really inspiring too. And so, you know, I, I still teach for rock tape. In fact, I'm teaching a, a taping course in a couple of weeks uh, online on webcast um, but yeah, I mean, and then, and then really what, what rock tape kind of instilled in me was this other passion of teaching. And what I didn't realize, I guess, clinically was that, you know, I always got great results. I mean, I, you, we worked together for a while and, and you got to see that. And, and I don't think that, you know, my hands are better than the next guy's hands or that my techniques are better. I, I think what maybe was the thing that set me apart at that time or, or even now still is that I was a really good teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm a good motivator and I can explain, um, I had a really good knack for explaining complex concepts in a way that people can understand and relate to and make it real for them and make it applicable for them and actionable and sustainable. And all of a sudden that translated into the results that are getting me the clients getting, you know, like, you know, it all kind of like goes hand in hand. And so end of the ice age is my own course. And so rock tape really, I think, revealed this passion for teaching and, and sharing my experience and sharing what I do know um, to other clinicians. And, and it's, it's one of the most rewarding things ever. I really do love it. Um, and, and, and so I, at that moment, when I started teaching, I realized, okay, this education thing is something that I really love and I want to continue to pursue. And so end of the ice age was really my, not my first stab at it. I had written another course before, which I'm going to kind of tweak and re-release this year. Um, it was a shoulder course, but end of the ice age was my first, like when we, when we got shut down for COVID was the thing that kind of kept me sane, you mm -hmm. know, in, in March and April when I was shut down and I'm just like, my hair's falling out more and I'm like stressing out. I'm going to lose my business and what's going to happen. And all this work that I've put into this over the years, just going to fall apart through no fault of my own. It was stressful for, and again, I understand that's the case for a lot of people, but end of the ice age is a course about acute care and how to manage acute injuries and post-surgical trauma in a more modern approach. Um, you know, I, I think we've been 
fucking it up for a really long time. Sorry to curse. Um, oh, you're good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, we've been really, we've been, we've really missed the boat on acute care and, and understanding a its importance in the, in the overall process. For example, the first month post-operatively or the first month post-injury is the most important time from a physiological perspective in that entire recovery. And most of the time what we do is bury it nice and immobilize it and just tell people to rest and basically do nothing. And we're missing the opportunities for that person to have a quality outcome in the long term, lay down good connective tissue, healing at a high level, returning that function and that sensory motor integration uh, early on in that process so that when you are going through strengthening and rehab that you have a really good software hardware connection and we're just missing so much opportunity. And I decided that I was going to take it upon myself to write an entire course just on that one topic, just on that acute phase, that first three to four weeks of an injury or trauma and just how in depth the physiology and complicated it is again, simplifying it into the bits that are important to be able to educate your patients and clients and athletes about why they're doing the things that they're doing, not just here, bury the shit nice for an hour. Why do you do that? You know what I mean? And anybody who's still a huge proponent of ice and I'll ask them, be like, why do you use ice? Oh, to reduce inflammation. <laughs> you're not reducing inflammation. That's not what you're doing. You're just slowing the process down. Inflammation's normal. Inflammation's a normal part of our immune system and the way that our body functions. You know, you thinking you know better than hundreds of thousands of years of evolution is, <laughs> is yeah. really important. <laughs> and so what I, what I did with End of the Ice Age... And it's not an anti-ice course. I think, uh, again, I think the title kind of alludes to that fact, but I wanted it to be demonstrative in some way um, and challenge the status quo because that's kind of what I'm about. Um, and, and so it really is diving deep into the physiology, being savagely good at the fundamentals of the healing process, and then being able to take a more modern approach, things that work synergistically with the body to optimize that process versus getting in the way, Right. And so people will be like, well, ice is good at reducing pain. So I'm still going to use it. I'm like, I'm not talking about the painless path. I'm talking about the optimized path. And what that means is you're going to have some discomfort. And if, if you want the best possible outcome, if you're telling me, Mike, I want the best possible outcome that does not involve a pain-free existence. Sorry. And you know, where are the, what other aspect of life does growth come without some struggle? And again, I'm not saying people need to suffer. There's plenty of ways that we can treat pain that don't get in the way of the healing process, right? That don't expose you to opioid, you know, addictive drugs that have a lot of downside and baggage. A lot of the things we do, even Advil, oh, just take this Advil. There's a lot of downside that comes with that little pill. We think it's safe because we can buy it at CVS. It's not, it is not. And, and so this was my attempt to, kind of write the ship and, and show people how important this process is. Um, I wrote it for a clinical audience. My plan is to adapt it into an athlete version or like a parent version or somebody, the lay person can take it and understand what are the right things to be doing in that part of the process versus, you know, just the standard operating procedure, you know? Yeah, of course. No, and I, I completely agree. Those moments, you know, the first month are, are so important, you know, and if you're just teaching the the system to, you know, 
hold the leg and not move and, and, and guard it right. in every area. It's just going to make the process a lot longer and a lot it's longer, just make a lot harder. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's right now I had, I had two guys have elbow surgery or, you know, a few months apart from each other. It was like the tail of two elbows, you know, one guy kind of bought in right away and, you know, was on top of the nutrition, on the nutrition plan that we talked about, did the basic stuff, right. Did his home care, listened, you know, when I was teaching him self-treatment strategies came in, you know, right after the surgery and within a, within a week, we had him at full range of motion. No, he never had any pain. And then I had another guy with an elbow who kind of went the classic route because he didn't want to, you know, cause I'm a cash-based clinic and cash-based business. So I don't do the insurance thing and I'm going to go do my insurance PT. And it's like four months later, we're still trying to work on getting his range of motion back. And now he's in with me trying to get his range of motion back because it was never restored you know, in the early on where the most opportunity was. And so again, not, again, I'm not better than anybody else. I think it's an approach and a perspective that is soundly backed by the science and the evidence that we have. It just isn't mainstream. We're just not talking about this because again, you go to your surgeon, who's that again, going back to our conversation before is that the tip of that iceberg or the pinnacle of that totem pole. And he gives you the rest ice compression elevation speech after your surgery most people are going to buy that hook, line, sinker, never look any deeper than that. And why does Doc give you that? Because it's easy. It's repeatable. It's cheap. And it's easy to explain. It's been around for 60 years. He doesn't have to, you know what I mean? So it's what people know and it's what they're comfortable with. And so, you know, I have ruffled some people's feathers and there's still people who are like, no, I disagree with you. I'm an ice guy. And it's like, okay, great. You know, do your thing. I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong, but the science has been pointing in a different direction for quite some time. And I just felt like I did this pretty well for a really long time. I really understood that the foundation of that is, is uh, really important. And um, this is just kind of my thought process, just organized and backed by the research and um, kind of laid out in a system of approach that, that I think a lot of people could implement um, and, and enhance their benefit. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a great course. And like I said, everything is changing. And I think you're the people that whose feathers are ruffling. They don't want to move the status quo. They want right. to stay. They want to stay to where they know. So they don't have to go learn more stuff. It's, e- it's ego. You know, yeah. I think the people mm-hmm. who really get ruffled about it and come back at me about it are the ones that have been doing it for a long time. And they can't come to grips with the fact that like, if I've been, do- I've been doing this this long, and maybe I was wrong about it. And so they take it as if I'm right, then they're wrong. And they just can't deal with that. Right. That ego part of them is like, no, 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 no. What do you mean? Everything I've been told is a lie. Everything that I learned is a lie. It's like, no, it was misinterpretation of limited information at the time. We have a lot more data now. We have a lot more information now. And, and we have to be able to take a step back from ourselves and examine it. Is this the right way to do it? Or is this just the way we've always done it? And that's where I've run into trouble in my career, even at LIU. Why I had friction with some of my, some of my colleagues because I was doing it differently. And me doing it differently meant that they were wrong. And that's never what I was trying to say. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, Hey, look at what I'm doing. Do you want to learn this? And it was never met with, Oh, that's interesting. Let Mm -hmm. me learn more. It was no, don't do that because this is the way we've always done it. And I never was going to, and that wasn't just an environment that I was going to really grow in, you know? 
Yeah, no, I, and I think that's that's kind of if you don't have that why pushing you or that that little bit of ego in there, then I think it kind of holds you together because you know not to you know be bash LIU love it to no death, I love, love but, great but great when experience. I was but when I was the strength coach you know and and you weren't there you know I would go back and forth to ATs and and for me for a little while not you know better now but I had some friction with most ATs because I was used to getting pushback you know this right. person got hurt okay I want them in the weight room doing this and the AT would go through the program, no. they can't right. do this they can't right. do this they can't and I'm like but but you want them to run in three months what am I supposed to what am I supposed to hang out and watch videos for a month and then all of a sudden they're going to get up and steal right. second base you know and and, 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 I, I, and again I think that was part it was really funny man because even in that experience early on was told like oh you know the strength coach is here like you know be careful with them and then I met you know, Richard and the guys. And I'm like, be careful of what these guys like fig- have it figured out. This is awesome. I mean, the weight room sucks, but these guys have a system and an approach that aligns with what I, you know, you know, I'm a, I got to come from a strength coach background too. I'm like, this is, I never, under- and I, and, and, you know, kind of going back to the Topa story was me and Richard talked every week, every week. And I wasn't the guy to say, Oh, he can't do that. I was the guy like, yeah, he can do that, but let's just modify it like this for now to protect his elbow. You know what I mean? And so we had a great working relationship. And, and so it's just interesting. It's always interesting um, because, again, like you said, your, your experiences kind of shape your future reactions to stuff. And, and I think even, you know, the athletic training profession as a whole has kind of been unfortunately besmirched by that whole that whole idea too. that like, you know, the eight athletic training room is a bad place that you don't want to go to because it means you're going to get shut down or it means you're going to, you know, that you're, you're going to be taken out of your sport or taken out of training or whatever the case is. And I was just never that guy because I just don't believe it. You don't get better to do doing nothing. Like when does that happen ever? No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, I think that the bad part is to it moving up the ranks, you know, they're in, in college, they become afraid in professional going to the AT room is like going to, like they don't at all costs they avoid going there because at in professional baseball because of the money involved a lot of them are like right. not not anymore but when I was you know my experience oh you jammed your finger you're out for a week you know and in minor leagues if you're out for a week you're done you might as well right. you know you're right yeah it's you. a paycheck potentially yeah. and and again I think and I think that's part of like th- those cultures in college and pro sports is part of the reason why a guy like me as an independent operator mm-hmm. has pro clients. Because they'll come and pay me cash out of their own pocket to get the work in and get the results that they're looking for without being told that they have to shut it down completely. You know, I'm going to work with you. I'm not going to, you know what I mean? And again, when you tell, when any, when any time a clinician, you know, I don't care if you're an AT, a PT, a Cairo, a doctor, anytime you say don't do it at all, you're doing that for you and not for the athlete. Mm -hmm. Because if you're really in it for the athlete, you'll find a way to get them something. And that's going to take more time. It's going to take more thought. It's going to take more effort on your part, but you're, that's you doing it for them. Oh, I, I'm shutting you down from training and sports because I'm trying to protect you. That's a cop out, man. That's a cop out. And I think that's what our industry really has to kind of take is this whole, again, collaboration over competition. Yep. You know, just because I'm an AT and you're CSCS doesn't make me better than you or more knowledgeable. It has nothing to do with that. We all have, we all have knowledge. We all have training. We all have education. You know what I mean? It's just a matter of putting our heads together and finding solutions to common problems, you know? Yeah, of course. And we're all in it together. And I think, 
you know, we talked about that don't do thing. I spoke on the last podcast, you know, with the, another strength coach. And I was like, everybody thinks that what we do uh, is within your programs. And my answer to that is always no. You could give me your entire rehab program and I could give you a year's worth of training. We would do things different because your skill comes in when a kid doesn't feel up to it or something bothers him, but you can still get work done. Right regardless of what's going on. A kid comes right. in the weight room and says, my, my knee's sore, right? Well, we're still going to get work in. We're just going to make sure we don't make that problem worse. And the same thing with you, right? If a right. kid comes in and says, well, my elbow feels like garbage today, you're not going to say, great, pack your stuff up and go home. You're right. going to find a way to progress them, even if it's to the littlest point. Right, exactly. And again, and that's where like the collaboration part comes in. And, um, you know, and also like, you know, a lot of times, you know, again, pain, pain is, a, is a tough thing, man. It's, it's a human experience that we all have. It's a very tightly wound into our emotional well-being and our social well-being. And, you know, pain isn't interpreted in any one region of the brain. It's multifactorial. And, you know, and, and, you know, in terms of like neurological or neurochemical signature, like pain, chronic pain and anxiety are, are, and fear are virtually the same neurosignature. And so a lot of times an athlete comes in with an injury issue and a lot of that pain perception, perhaps, and this is what the science has been pointing to, is that apprehension or fear of the unknown, right? And, and again, that's what pain is, is a threat meter, not a damage meter. And, you know, that's why paper cut hurts like hell, you know, but like, you know, you can be in mass. I blew my knee out and I don't remember even being in pain, you know, but my point is being is that sometimes an athlete just needs permission to move, to feel better. Oh, listen, man, like the knee is structurally solid. You got a little bit of tendonitis. It looks like we're going to modify this. Um, we're going to give you a little treatment, but the knee is solid, nothing to worry about. Let's just load it a little differently for this week. And all of a sudden now that what was the treatment there? Okay. Maybe I did some manual therapy or whatever. Give them a little kinesiology tape. The real treatment in that scenario was me reducing that athlete's anxiety. You know what I mean? And so like kind of coming full circle from like end of the ice age, how many athletes end up having a surgical procedure and they're told, okay, don't move out of this brace. Don't touch anything. I don't want you to pick up anything heavier than two pounds. And now that athlete leaves in their elbow brace thinking that they're freaking made out of chalk, that they're going to explode if they pick up a gallon of milk. Like, no, that's not what's going to happen. Like you were far more resilient than people give you credit for, but all that doctor's done is instill more fear and more anxiety and more uncertainty over the capacity of that, that person. And now that makes this a more painful experience yep. versus, Hey man, like, you know, we have to be a little careful around the surgical site, but we, there's a whole lot of other things that we can work on. Um, there's a whole lot of ways that we can give somebody, you know, give somebody some autonomy back here. I'm going to show you what to do at home. And now you have, instead of doing nothing and waiting for it to feel better, something actionable to do. Yep. And it's like, and it's even like comes down to the pandemic. And I think, and I think people get like, this is like a hot topic, but people are like, Oh, washing your hands. Right. Why do we tell people to wash their hands when there's a viral pandemic happening? Well, we know that COVID isn't really easily transmitted via surfaces. We knew that pretty early on, but the message is still wash your hands. Why? It's giving you something to do. Oh, like I am taking control of this situation because I can wash my hands multiple times a day. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, you touched a doorknob and then accidentally wiped your face. You're going to get COVID now. There's no science or research to support that, but mm -hmm. it's something we can actionably do. What can you, what can we do? And then to reduce some of this anxiety that people are having about 
you know, again, it's a scary thing, you know, not to bridge that. And obviously it's not a direct correlation, but you, we have to understand the psychosocial aspect of pain and the social, and, and that's the psychosocial aspect of rehab. And it's not just a physical biological thing that has no. to happen. Yeah, no, 100%. You have to be, that's why, you know, we talked about ego and we talk about understanding what you're, what you, you know, and, and being able to, I think it's a good thing you brought up to convey those messages because especially in those early times, everything you say to those kids, they hang on to, like, right. they take everything to the bank. If they say, if you say you're going to play in seven months, seven, they, they put an X on their, you know, on the calendar. Or if you say, we're not going to do this to whatever they lean on those words. That's why, you right. know, we talk about, Oh, do nothing. Well, you've just made them a leper, you know, right. not nonchalantly, but that's, every time it, it, an it, it's the is easiest like, thing to do is just exactly. take it all oh, away. It's the oh, they can. Yep. Or I've heard it a hundred times. Oh yeah. They can't do anything. Put them on the, put them on a the treadmill, have them run, do cardio. I'm like, okay. So the rest of their team is getting better doing agility and moving and they're on an, Off on the side. Listen to an iPod. They Friday they know night. they're not stupid. They're they know they're not getting any better, and they're just here because they have to be part of the you know a part of the team. You have to include people, and I think it's great you brought up the physio part. It's psychologically you have to. That's harder than the the mental the the physical part. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Our bodies are great at healing, yeah. despite popular belief. Our bodies are excellent healers. You know, and we just have to get out of the way a lot of the times and just understand that that's not just a meat suit. It's not just a meat vehicle. It's a human being. And, and again, this comes from my experience as an injured athlete because nobody ever explained any of that to me. And again, the way I go about it too, like, listen, I, I have a very different approach than standard PT. I do, you know me. And I'm, I am a little bit more aggressive. I'm not going to put you in a position to get hurt worse, but, I'll get athletes like, well, what doc told me to do nothing. Why is your message so different? So I'm like, it's a perspective thing. He's sharing with you his perspective, right? That do nothing wasn't handed down from Mount Sinai on two stone tablets from God. It's his perspective. And he can't be there with you to protect you. You're when you're with me, you're in a controlled environment. I'm measuring and gathering data every session, every minute we're together about where your current level of capacity is. And if you want to raise that bar, we have to work close to that level of capacity. You can't, you know, jog on the spin bike, you know, while the rest of the team is training and think, okay, in a few weeks, I'm going to go out there and be in the same, you know, strength and cardiovascular fitness as everybody else. When I've been working at 20% of my max heart rate, you know what I mean? Like you're just not going to expand that, that capacity or that resiliency by, by playing it safe. And, and the, and again, I, I do it in a way that's not bashing their doctor. I say, listen, your doctor's job is to protect that surgery. The only way that he can do it or he or she can do it universally without being with you every day is to tell you to do nothing. But you're here with me now. And these are the things that you can do safely because I've evaluated you. I'm measuring this stuff and I'm with you every day or most days, you know, so we'll, we'll have more data to make these decisions with, you know what I mean? Yeah. And no, so, I think, Right. I think it's important to understand that, you know, with, for athletes and anybody that goes to doctors, the doctor also, I think sometimes it gets taken. If you're in a controlled environment with a professional, you can do things. They mm -hmm. don't want you outside in your lawn by yourself, jumping up and down, you know, two weeks right. after ACL surgery. Exactly. If you're in a closed environment, you know, that was my favorite thing, you know, going back to in college settings. Oh, they have ACL problems. They can't squat or no, they need to wear the braces in the weight room. And I'm like, but how is the structural integrity of the knees going to get any better if 
they wear a brace in the weight room. I say, they're not going to tear their ACL doing a squat. I don't even know if that's ever happened. Right. Right. You know? Exa- no, exactly. But it's like, again, it's the easy thing to do is just yep. take it away and eliminate all risk. But again, if you want reward, it has to come with risk. Yep. You know what I mean? Nobody who invested in Apple in 1986 was like, Oh, that's a sure thing. You know what I mean? Like they well, put their well, money in their took- stock for what a hundred grand or some somebody sold their stock for like a hundred thousand dollars and be worth like four billion right now. Exactly, and the, but for that's the- what I mean. Is like with risk comes reward, and and, and again, w- our jobs as clinicians and strength coaches is to calculate yep. how much. And and I and I talk about this. This is a concept I talk about a lot in my course. I talk a lot with my athletes. Is ROI? It's a business term. Return on investment. I'm constantly seeking the highest return on investment. Is ice a good pain reliever? Absolutely. But it has no return on that time investment. In fact, it has a negative ROI because you're slowing down your healing process. You're going to create incomplete healing. Is there another way that I can alleviate some pain and give you a higher ROI on that outcome for you? That's what end of the ice age is is maximizing ROI as maximizing the return on your time investment and, 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 and efficiency. That's what we're talking about. And again, when we have something like healing, where we have a pretty damn good idea of that physiology and how that process takes place, there are opportunities there, right? There are yep. Apple stocks in the first week of your post-operative ACL that will pay you that $4 billion at month nine. In, in, in the form of quality collagen laydowning, quality sensory motor integration. There's lots of things there that are going to pay you dividends down the line that you don't even think about. But what do we do? Oh, it's, it hurts right now. Instant gratification. Let me throw this ice bag on there. It'll feel better temporarily. And so again, when I go back and I tell people like, do you want the best outcome or the painless one? Because they're not the same thing. Oh, exactly. That ROI. They're not uh, the same thing. Since we're talking about healing, I might as well throw it out there. What's your opinion on the CBD creams and, and those things? I, again, I th- this is something I'm looking at a lot. Um, you know, we don't have all the answers yet, but the cannabinoid system is something that's already in our body. We have endogenous cannabinoids within our body. Um, it, it, it CBD has more to do with the, the feedback mechanism for the inflammatory process than the actual inflammatory process itself. So in that way, I describe it as a buffer. Um, I do talk about it at end of the ice age from a nutritional point. Um, I don't, I don't universally recommend it because of, you know, NCAA and professional league, um, you know, drug policies and, and, you know, and it's still a relatively new modality, but this is something that's been well documented in the research that we have to be something that we should be using. Um, it's got a high upside, you know, I, I think it's been demonized in a lot of the industry for a while and, you know, because of it's, you know, obviously tied to being, you know, cannabis and, you know, the psychoactive component, but um, it is something that I'll recommend to people. It's something I talk about in my course. Um, is it a fire and forget weapon? No, it's a strategy. It's mm-hmm. something that if you're doing everything else at a high level, you're, you're eating clean, you, you're getting enough sleep. Those are the most two fundamental important things you can do for the healing process. If you're taking care and you're moving you're on some level, you're getting your movement in your heart rate up. If you're taking care of those three things on a base level, there is, there is upside to maybe supplementing with CBD if you're stuck in like a chronic inflammatory mode. It's not something I recommend early in the process, but maybe in that subacute or chronic stage, if you're somebody that's dealing with maybe subacute or chronic inflammation. Yeah, no, I, I use it for, uh, I just use that uh, with soreness and movement. So I yeah. put it on and then do some. Yeah, again, you know, and what, yeah. you know, 
in, in that, and again, I go back to ROI, you know, even if you put a little bit of CBD cream on somebody and it, you know, it has other things in it. So it makes them feel better. What harm did you do to get that feel better? Nothing. You didn't, yeah. you didn't set that person back and understanding the mechanism of action for these things. There is more from a physiological level that can be happening. Again, I don't know if the topicals are as efficacious as, you know, internally take it like hemp oil or, mm -hmm. you know, internally, you know, like digest, you know, in, uh, as far as like ingested uh, CBD, but um, you know, there is some research that's coming out. So we'll see, you know what I mean? So I don't know if these creams are really doing what they say they're doing. You know, there's always, we always got to dig a little bit deeper. We don't have all the answers, but no, I, I think, you know, as we start to see, the uh, the uh, social view of cannabis and uh, CBD oil and these things start to become more socially accepted that we'll start seeing a lot more research come out. And, uh, and, and I think we'll start seeing these things being used mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the only thing holding back is that, that little, that little negative. Over yeah, you don't want to get popped on a drug test and that's why I don't recommend it to my college athletes. Yeah. yeah no, just absolutely. You know, it's even, a, even a topical, I would hate to put somebody in a position where, and again, a lot of these things, aren't regulated well, the topicals. And, and so we're not really regulated at all. So you don't know the claims that are on the bottle versus, you know, you got to read the research. And, and so, you know, I'm somebody that's proud to say that I'm, you know, I'm a geek and a super dork and I'll sit down and read research articles and try to understand everything in them uh, because I'm obsessed with that. Why, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's important, you know, and, right. and just talking in everything we've gone over, whatever you want to do, you have to understand the research. And then like we've talked about, you know, the similarities between me, you and school, you have to have a why. And just because somebody who you think knows more than you doesn't tell you to research it, you're allowed to go research it. Information's out there for everybody. <laughs> right. You know? And you have to get to a certain point before you can throw it down people's, you know, before you start explaining it, make sure you're, you know, diligent. But if you know, you can always find a why for everything. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be at the bottom of the totem pole in anything. You know, if you're a janitor, that yeah, that information is accessible. You can 100%. you can still you know do research. So I I don't like to see oh well I'm not going to do that or or that's not required right now. It doesn't matter. You can find the why because the better you get at that, we talked about before, right? You want to dress for where you want to be. You don't want to show up at the job wearing the same clothes from the last job. You know, right. you want to always make sure you're prepared. Um, before the opportunities, because then what well, happens, put, yeah, put yourself in the position, exactly. to, you know what I mean? You put yourself in that position and that takes, uh, you know, diligence, consistency. Um, you know what I mean? Like all, all those little things that aren't glamorous on social media. Yep. Everybody wants to see the crazy weird exercise or something they've never seen before. Cause novelty is fun and novelty is important in a lot of ways, but the, the things that really get that, that NFL MLB result are the things that are boring. A lot of times the things that, you know, um, you know, taking care of your nutrition on a day-to-day -day basis, getting enough sleep, you know, sleep isn't sexy, but that's how we heal. It's important. You know what I mean? And like, we got so many kids playing sports that stay up till two in the morning playing Fortnite and call of duty and they eat a hot pocket and a, and a candy bar and they think, oh, just because I show up to the weight room, I'm going to get results. It's like, no, yep. no, you got to put all the pieces in place. And then, and only then are you putting yourself in an opportunity to have that result. It doesn't guarantee it. You could do everything right and still not get the result. Um, and, and you just got to be okay with that. And that's, again, like you said earlier, like falling in love with the process and being okay with the process over the outcome.
you know? Yep, exactly. Setting yourself up for the best possible outcome instead of right. doing things that are going to impede that. And I, I, I just talked to a colleague the other day and I was like, you know, strength conditioning, you know, all these crazy exercises that people do. We always do that. We always go out and people got units and wires hooked up to them. And then we always end up doing what the Russians did 60 years ago. Find out that that works the best, you know, for strength <laughs> output and certain things. Right, so, right. like I said, I mean, you know, simple. But as you said, simple is not sexy. You know, uh, right. how do I get better? You, you know, eat some vegetables, make sure your diet's on track, sleep and drink two gallons of water. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. you know, oh, my God, you know, and that's, you know, I went to a health conference once and the girl, woman stood up there and said, do you want to be healthier? Sleep eight hours, eat healthy, drink water, exercise, and then like meditate. And I was like, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, look at the research and those are the universal thing. And, and that's the thing, too. And again, I'm not, not to bring this into a political conversation at yeah. all, but. You know, like all this emphasis with COVID being placed on masks and vaccines and, you know, social distancing, when the real plague that we're faced with is a country of people that are immunosuppressed from shitty diet, high stress, uh, lack of sleep, lack of quality food, lack of exercise. People have metabolic dysfunction. They have comorbidities. Oh, but I'm not diabetic. Okay. Just because your A1C level is one point under that line that we drew that says you're diabetic doesn't mean that you're not at risk because you weren't diagnosed with something. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's, and that's the part that drives me nuts. Are masks important? Sure. I wear one every day with my clients. I make them wear it. It's the easiest thing that we can do to, to hopefully protect each other. You know, is the vaccine important? Sure it is. It's going to help a lot of people who are immunosuppressed. It is going to help a lot of people who do have these comorbidities. But what is the ultimate solution to this problem is to get people healthier. How do we get people healthier? Mm -hmm. Sleep more. Meditate eat clean quality food that isn't mass produced, you know, exercise, get your heart rate up every now and again, you know, go outside and get some freaking sunshine, you know, look, I mean, again, and it's, it's ridiculous to me. It's like one of the number one comorbidities for people who have really bad outcome with COVID is vitamin D deficiency. That's been in all of the research from Europe, from Asia and the U S has been reconfirming that. And we're like, stay inside. Don't go outside because as soon as you go outside, you're going to get COVID. It's, it's like, waiting for you outside in the oh yard. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, and so now we've created this fear mongering tactic, you know, and yeah. that's, and that's our medical model is fear mongering. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the business of instilling. If you, fear. if you don't do this, this terrible evil thing that you don't understand, right. cause we don't give you all the information is going to happen. Right. And again, is it a dangerous thing? Yes. Is it a real thing? Yes. Is it tied up in politics and other lobbyists and special interest groups now yes it is it's not one or the other it's both it's all of the above but let's let the message be taking care of your health taking care of your health and being responsible and accountable for your body and your health and this like you said the information's out there Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear the people who are doing okay with this with this virus are the people who aren't in those comorbidity or metabolic dysfunction categories again and if you're in one of those categories, the best thing you could do to protect yourself is get yourself out of that category. Yep. Change and your habits. You, and how do you do that? You call Joe Lego and say, Hey, I want to train virtually with you. You <laughs> know what I mean? And like, how can you help me get my body back together? And, and I'm, you know, again, all these things are important. I, you know, just to tie it full circle is, you, you know, you can't, you can't build a house, a beautiful house on a shitty foundation. At the end of the day, that house can be immaculate, but if you got a massive crack in your foundation or your foundation is crumbling, guess what? That's a shitty house. 
don't care how many bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchens it's got. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's all about building that foundation, whether that's career, whether that's athletic development, whether that's sports medicine and clinical rehab or, 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 you know, surviving a pandemic. It's all the same stuff. Be savagely good at the basics. Exactly. No, and it's across the board, like I said. Uh, Mike, for anybody who wants to get into, you know, the, the AT, CSCS realm, at a young age, what would you say would be kind of a few courses of action that you would recommend to kind of set you up, uh, you know, in the best possible way for, for kind of what you want to do? Uh, I, I think, I, I like, you know, again, kind of talking about where we were alluding to earlier of like, you know, how both of us kind of like stood the test of time in our early parts of our career through a lot of hardship was because we really loved the work that we're doing. And I, I think fitness, health, rehab has that. It's an alluring profession because you get to help people. You're not sitting at a desk all day, but there's like everything else, there's good and bad. And I, and I think, you know, shadowing somebody, you know, working with a, a coach that you admire and, and just being in the trenches with them for a period of time to see if that's really what you're passionate about. Uh, you know, one of my early mentors, Glenn Marinelli was the head athletic trainer at Marist college for well over 30 years. Um, he passed away from a brain, brain cancer a few years ago, but um, I think in college I was concerned about career prospects and athletic training because it typically is a very underpaid profession. And one of the things I'll never forget that he said to me, if the passion's there, the money will come. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand what he meant at that time, but it's something that I'll never forget. And he was a hundred percent right. You know, I, I you know, my twenties bartended to fund my career because this is what I knew I wanted to do. I just, I needed to make a buck. And and I think a lot of people can look, it's always easier to look across the fence and see the grass is greener on the other side and jump ship. Um, But the reality is, is the grass is greener where you water it, Yep. you know, and, and you got to take care of home base first. And, you know, um, again, I'm, I'm very grateful for the hardships. I'm grateful for the, that time, but I'm also grateful for the people that I've had in my career throughout the process because I've learned so much from them. So much of them has rubbed off on me. Um, and a lot of times it's lessons that I learned way back when that I didn't really internalize and really learn the lesson until years later when it like pops up and you're like, Oh, see, he was right. He or she was right about that. Or like, now I get it all these years later. And so, uh, the, the advice that be patient, it's not a race. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think I interpreted my own career as a race. If I just got this knowledge faster than everybody else, I would progress faster than everybody else. And, And that's just not how it works. You know, you'll be ready when you're ready. Um, but be diligent, consistent, and patient and put the time in each day to put yourself in the position for that opportunity to be, so that you're ready for it when it comes. Cause you don't know when it's going to come. Some people get it earlier. Most people don't. And, and so I think that for me is the advice that I would give is just be patient. You know, there's no overnight successes in this field, constantly learn, constantly sharpen the sword there's always more to learn you don't know it all um have fun with it you know what i mean because again all those hardships i'm also reminded of all those awesome moments you know throughout throughout those years that uh i would never trade for anything in the in the world you know yeah so, yeah Awesome. Awesome piece of advice. And just second that I had a mentor say the same thing. You know, he said, if he said, look, if you do all this stuff with passion and you make sure you take care of the people you train, you'll never have to worry about anything. And you know, that's the same resonating thing. I think we've been talking about it, you know, the whole time you have to have passion and you have to, that passion has to be the most important thing. And and that's it, you know, and and that's going to help drive. And then just find a way and just find a way, you know what I mean? Exactly. 
I didn't love bartending with a master's degree and, you know, going from the athletic training room on a Friday and go bartend for 12 straight hours, go straight back to the athletic training room Saturday morning and prep men's soccer for their Saturday game. Like I hated it working 30 hours straight clip. I did it because it was what was, it was the way that I had, you know, again, I'm not looking for a pat on the back or sympathy or anything like that. It was, that's my journey. That's where, you know, that's the perspective that I come from now and why I'm just so grateful for all of it. You know, the movement underground, my business and what that allows me to do in my life and, and rock tape and the people I get to surround myself and learn from and learn with and, you know, like, you know, social media stuff, like all of it is just, it's just amazing to me um, that anybody is interested in what I have to say. But again, I think it comes from the fact that we've all been there on some level. And, and I, and I hope that my story can be an inspiration to some, you know, someone younger than me or, or someone who's thinking about entering this field and, and why my door is always open. Um, you know, cause I, I, that's teaching is one of my favorite things, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. Teaching is fantastic. And that's what we all strive to be, right. uh, to be an example for somebody else that they can use when they're going through harsh times. You know, sure, I don't think it's, sure. we don't want, you know, the accolades, we don't want craziness, the brand stuff, but it's more of, if, I mean, I'll take, I, I'll take, I'll take, you oh, know, yeah. if I can make a fortune, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> the <laughs> Apple stock. Yeah. If I can get an Apple stock, that's if great. I get the Apple stock now, I'll take it. But uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're dead on it, man. You're dead on it. Exactly. Uh, so what's up next for the future, Mike? I mean, I know we have COVID as a, as a thing, but like in terms of like your personal goals, regardless of, of that, uh, what, what's kind of next on your, on your radar and, and how do you want to build? Um, you know, obviously the movement underground is my pride and joy, my own business. Um, you know, working in the business and working on the business is kind of like both of the things that I'm spending the most time on. You know, I, I, I've really figured out and like started to dial in this whole like grooming you know, the other guys that work with me and, and work under me and, and that's, and teaching them is something that brings me a lot of joy every day and watching them succeed earlier in their careers than I did, I think is, it keeps me going like as a business owner now. Um, the education piece is going to be a huge part of my future, you know, uh, creating more courses, creating more content, um, you know, building a, my own curriculum, so to speak, and, and doing that online education stuff. Um, and then I'm also going to release a product this year. I'm not going to say what it is. It's still, I'm going to keep it close to the chest. So I got lots of projects. Uh, I guess it's a good and a bad thing that I never finish one before I start the next one, but <laughs> it's just something I want to do. And I, and I think, you know, what COVID has revealed to a lot of people, especially myself, is that you need to diversify. You have to have multiple streams of income. Ideally, um, if you can do that, you, it kind of just, you know, it bulletproofs you, not bulletproofs you, but it, you know, again, I, how was I able to weather the COVID storm when I was shut down for five months? Um, because I could teach. Apple stock. I had rock tape, Apple stock, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I was teaching. And then I saw that as like, wow, rock tape right now, if I didn't have rock tape, I'd be, you know, fucked. And you know, they really, you know, they really helped us out during those early times because we were able to get online and teach our webcasts and get paid. Um, and that's when I was like, you know what, the, now's the time to start building my own courses and uh end of the ice age was really the first one that i launched um that i that i authored curated lectured and launched online and it's been such a cool ride and it's been so well received so i'm definitely going to do more of those but i'm also going to launch a product this year which i'm really excited about so that's kind of in the really early r&d stages um but that's going to be the next thing um that kind of you know, keeps my wheels grinding and turning a little bit, but, um, you know, lots of different stuff for me, what you can expect, 
but I think that's pretty par for the course as far as anybody who's followed me for any length of time is kind of always moving. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> can I, can I beta test the product? A hundred percent brother. hundred percent. Awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Like I said, uh, bottom line, always keep moving. You know, yeah, I think COVID, you know, to, to agree with Mike, uh, I got a bunch of stuff, you know, going on that I'm trying to do and, and diving into things I would never do. Like I said, I always bring it up. The podcast would have been a thing without COVID. I know? love it, man. You know, you know, again, you know, and you, you are definitely a coach that I've come across that has the gift of gab. You better <laughs> than any, you know what I mean? Because you are so passionate. You are so into it. And you're, you're so personable. I think a podcast for you is like, is like tailor made, man. Like, why didn't you do yeah. this five, 10 years ago? No, I'm kidding. I don't know. That's the same thing. But and I, I appreciate all that. Excellent that's... interviewer. I've enjoyed uh, sitting down and chatting with you today for sure, man. We'll do it. Again. Awesome, man. No, I, I love it, man. And definitely got to come out to long Island and catch up. Mike, Absolutely. anybody that wants to, uh, you know, get some information or, you know, who hasn't followed you, what's the best places to kind of reach you and, and kind of uh, ask some questions and things of that sort. Uh, yeah. I mean, the best place to reach me, um, is probably Instagram. Uh, my, my tag is, uh, at Mike Stella underscore ATC. Um, I have my own personal brand website, which is Mike Stella movement.com. Like that's kind of my one-stop shop for all the stuff that I'm into these days. So you'll see some movement underground stuff, rock tape, teaching tour, the end of the ice age course is on there. I also do a uh, practitioner mentorship. So you can book a uh, time with me if you're looking to start a business. Um, so I've mentored, you know, a lot of young athletic trainers who want to start their own business, physical therapists that are trying to get into like the cash based setting or work with more athletes. So if you're somebody who you think, you know, I could be of some value to your career and you want to sit down and talk shop and, and figure out your and help and have me help you figure out your situation, you can book a, a practitioner mentorship um, appointment with me on my website and we'll zoom call it and do that kind of thing. So a lot of different things, obviously the product now. So all of that's going to live on MikeStellaMovement.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about the movement underground, that's at the movement underground.com. So that's sort of like all the clinical stuff, my clinic here in Farmingdale, um, you know, the kin stretch courses that we offer, you know, the manual therapy rehab stuff. So you could definitely go there and check that out, but I'm pretty fi- findable on social media. Instagram and YouTube are the two that I'm the most active on Instagram and Twitter, but Instagram being like probably my number one, my, my, uh, my, my bay. So um, yeah, just reach out to me there and we'll link up. Awesome. And I also will put the Instagram handle for Mike uh, on the podcast promo on Instagram for anybody that wants to catch it there and, and shoot him a message. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it again, Joe. It's been great catching up and, and chatting with you, buddy. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, I can't thank you enough, Mike. And I, I really enjoyed the time chopping it up, talking shop, man. I miss it. <laughs> yeah, man, me too. I, I definitely miss it too. But we'll catch up soon enough. And, um, you know, wishing you the best of luck, future endeavors. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Uh, you're doing great things. You're helping a lot of people and I'm proud of you, man. Oh, thanks, man. I, I truly appreciate yeah. it. Uh, no, you're most welcome.